Welcome to another inspirational message from Chowdean Community Church, Gateshead. For more information about Chowdean, visit www.chowdean.org.uk. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Everybody hear me all right at the back? We're okay, champion. Well, as you can see, oh no, not yet. Well, anyway, we're up to chapter four of the book of Micah, which is in the Old Testament. So we're halfway through the summer series that we're doing. Now, I think I mentioned here once before that I'm hopeless at maths, but I like words. So I brought along a few word definitions that I thought you might like. The first one is the word selfish. And that's what the owner of a seafood store does. Sell fish. (laughs) Relief. It's what trees do in the spring. Relief. You have to think about it. Misty. That's how golfers create divots. Misty. Avoidable. That's what a bullfighter tries to do. Avoid a bull. You're getting there, you're getting there. And hindsight. That's what you get from changing too many nappies. So, the title for our talk this morning is Hope Displayed, and the writer G.K. Chesterton came up with a really good definition of hope. He said, hope means expectancy when things are otherwise hopeless. And in the previous weeks of this series, we've learned that the people of Israel and Judah were going against the laws of God that he'd given them through Moses. They were leaving God out of their lives, they were living any way they wanted to, and God wasn't pleased about it. Now, Micah, he was a prophet. He was an ordinary man from a small town who was chosen by God to go and speak to the people and warn them that if they didn't mend their ways and start to put God first in their lives, then God would have no choice but to discipline them. It's what Ruth referred to last week as a severe mercy. Now, we know that the land was very important to the Israelite people. And Micah was sent to tell them that if they refused to change their ways, then the northern kingdom would be defeated by the Assyrian army, and later the southern half of the kingdom would be defeated by the Babylonians. The people were expected to live by the laws of Moses. If they did, they would be blessed. If not, they would be judged and eventually cast out of the land of promise. Now, I want to stress here that it brought God no pleasure at all to have to do this, But it was out of his great love for them that he had to discipline. And the Bible tells us that God disciplines those he loves. Just as any loving father would discipline his child, if a child was heading into trouble, you would have to discipline them, you'd have to punish them, you'd have to stop them. Not out of vindictiveness, but because of love and because of wanting the best for the person. And sometimes God just has to discipline us a bit because he's maturing us, he's wanting to make us more like Jesus. He's preparing us for eternal life with him. And there are times when we might think, what is happening in my life? What's going on here? But we need to never lose sight of the fact that God is in control. So these first three chapters of Micah have been looking a bit doom and gloom. But in chapter four, we get the gleam of light. We see mercy shining through. And Micah gives people hope for the future. So I'm just going to read the key verses from chapter 4. 
just verses 1 and 2 from Micah chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So even though he's warning them that disaster was going to come, eventually it would all work out all right. God would bring them back to the land. So he gives them hope. Now, I read recently that it's been said a man can live for 40 days without food, three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but he cannot live without hope. And when Colin and I were in Africa working with Mercy Ships, our daughter Helen and her family came out to visit at Christmas time, and we took a trip along the coast for a short holiday. And while we were there, Colin and Helen and I went to tour a fort in Elmina, which was where captured Africans were taken before being shipped out for a life of slavery. Now, we were taken into this underground room, no lights, no windows, where the slaves had been kept. They were packed in so tightly that they couldn't sit down or lie down. And then while we were in there, they switched the light off. And I, you could just imagine what it was like. I mean, you could not see anything at all. And eventually, they were led along a tunnel and out to the waiting ship that would take them to a life of slavery from which there was no escape. And above the exit where they stepped out to the waiting ships was carved, Abandon hope, all you who enter here. Dostoevsky said, Totally without hope, one cannot live. To live without hope is to cease to live. Hell is hopelessness. It is no accident that above the entrance to Dante's hell is the inscription, Leave behind all hope, you who enter here. Now, the psychiatrist, Dr. Victor Frankl, was a Holocaust survivor. And he observed during his time in the concentration camp that a prisoner did not live very long after hope was lost. But even the slightest ray of hope, the rumor of better food, a whisper of an escape, helped some of the camp inmates to continue living under systematic horror. And this is what God does here through Micah. He gives that ray of hope. And the prophet was sure of the promises of God because he knew the promise giver. He could say, yes, things are going to get difficult. There's going to be trouble, but don't despair. There's a light on the horizon. And Micah remembered the promises that God had made to earlier men of God, the promises that had been made to Abraham and Moses and David. And in times of difficulty, it's really important for us to remember how God has helped us in the past. On the morning after my husband, Colin, received his recent cancer diagnosis, I sat down to pray and opened my daily reading book. I'm using a devotional book by Spurgeon at the moment. And in this book, the writer was talking about faith, but he was using a feminine pronoun in his description. And I read, she remembers that God has never failed her. She recalls times of great peril when deliverance came and she can say, no, never will I think that he can change and leave me now. Hitherto has the Lord helped me and he will help me still. What an amazing God. You know, he has brought us this far. He has always helped us. And his promise is 
He will help us still. And you know, this can be used to speak to others because people outside of the church do watch to see how we're going to respond when things go wrong. When we've got troubles, people watch to see how we'll respond. And a few weeks ago, I was speaking at a church in fenced houses, and I was singing a verse from a hymn. I don't sing out loud because I'm not a good singer, Colin will tell you that. But I was singing to myself on the way over, and then we prayed in the car park together that God would not only speak to the people there, but that he would also speak to us through the words of the hymns or through the prayers, that God would also give us some encouragement. Now, when we got in, there'd been a little bit of a mix-up about who was choosing the hymns that morning, because they thought I was choosing them, and I thought they were doing it. So I went into the vestry to pray with the person, and the chairperson for that day very quickly decided on a few hymns. Now, the last one contained the verse that I'd been singing on the way over. So again, I thought, oh, you know, that's lovely. God's giving us some reassurance here. Now, later in the afternoon, I was talking to a lady whose husband is in the same care home as my mother. And I was telling her about Colin's illness, and she was sympathizing. So I said, well, you know, it is in times of trouble that we prove our faith. It either works or it doesn't. So she asked me a few questions. So I told her what had happened in the morning, and she asked me what the verse was. And it was this, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. This lady then asked me, Heather, is it possible to live free from guilt in this life? Because she said, I've done so many things that I feel guilty about. I said, I very much doubt if you've done more things in your life to be guilty about than I have. And I was just able to share with her how the day I gave my life to Jesus, I knelt down by my bedside. And from that moment on, all of the wrong things that I was doing, I was cleansed. I was made clean. I was a new creature. The past was forgotten, forgiven. And I live free from guilt. I just know that we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So I'm free from guilt and free to live in a right relationship with God. I'd like to say that she then asked how to become a Christian, but I have to say that she just sighed and said, hey, I wish I had your faith. But, you know, I just think again, it's an opportunity for hope to be displayed. Now, not all problems are the discipline of God. We live in a world that is out of sync with God. God doesn't cause the problems. And we're always subject to the decisions of other people. Problems in life are inevitable. You know what they say? All sunshine and no rain makes a desert. And Jesus was very realistic when he said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's not really a matter of if, but when. Everybody experiences suffering and sorrow. They're going to happen. It's a normal part of life. Nobody gets to skate through life problem-free. And troubles are unpredictable. You can't plan them. You can't think, I must be due for a bit of trouble. I'll schedule that for two weeks on Tuesday when I've got a bit more time to cope with it. No, troubles come when you could definitely do without it. And they're a bit like double-decker buses. They all come at once. And what starts out as a good day can so swiftly become a bad day. It just needs to be a phone call, a freak accident. You just want to say, beam me up, Scotty. You know, problems in life 
the, the difficulties and the feeling down, depression, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that you're a person. And we need to remind ourselves that others have been there before and have survived. And I could look around this church this morning and see many people who've suffered a lot, you know, who've had a lot of things that have gone on in their lives and hard things to cope with. But I look around and I think, they're still here, they're still standing in the faith. So take heart. Problems do have an end to them. It's not a dead end. The Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter, verses 6 to 9, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for your receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And God does have a purpose in these times. Faith is strengthened in the valleys. Financial problems, emotional problems, doubt and depression, sickness, despair. There is a reason behind it. And God wants to build your faith in the valleys of life. When everything's going fine, you don't really need God so much. When you come face to face with a dark valley, that's when you get on your knees. And when you don't feel like praising or serving or trusting God, that's when your faith is tested, not in the good times in life. And even little problems, inconsequential irritations, they have a purpose in God teaching us character because he wants to change us and mature us. Another prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, he was a man who knew the valley experience, and yet he could say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, the one who seeks him. And the difference between absolute despair and unintimidated confidence is the future is hope. Hope, as the Bible talks about it, is not the same as optimism. Optimists think that they can or that others will. Those with hope know that God will. And the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the reason hope does not disappoint? Because God. I was very encouraged by what Dr. Micah Jazz said in Premier Radio book the other day. And he said, it may be that your life is being turned upside down in ways that you never envisaged and certainly never requested. This is a time when hope is all you can hold on to. And hope is holding on to something unseen as if it was already in view. For each of us, there are times when the only way we can proceed is by maintaining a hold on what we believe to be real and true, while having little evidence to support us in our view of that truth. And this is what the Bible calls hope. Hope for the future is often based on our experience of the past. When your hope is in God, you're basing your confident expectation for the future 
on the faithfulness that you have experienced and known in the past, which is why memory is so important to hope. We sang this morning about the anchor for our souls, and it, the catacombs were where the Christians hid from Roman persecution and where they buried their dead. Archaeologists have discovered a number of early Christian symbols, and one common symbol is an anchor, because the Bible says, and this is speaking about Jesus, but we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. When we started this series in Micah, I really knew very little about him. As we've read, I think he was a bit of a hero. He was chosen from a humble background, and yet he was a prophet to kings. And he certainly wasn't afraid to bring an unpopular message to the people. And God's heroes come in all shapes and sizes. They aren't carbon copies, they're originals. In today's world, we tend to think of celebrities as heroes, like football heroes or pop idols. Samuel Boston wrote that two centuries ago, if a great man appeared, people looked for God's purposes in him. Today, they look for his press agent. But God's heroes are those who dare to be themselves and to do the work that God has called them to do. Micah was not popular in his day. The people didn't want to hear his message but he was prepared to go against the flow. And so often, it's the same for us today. You just try telling people outside of the church that they need to stop living their own way and start living God's way. Try mentioning the consequences of dying without being right with God. Try mentioning the day of judgment in hell, and many people will just walk away and not want to know. But God's heroes trust the promises of God, and they aren't afraid of change. Heroes like Micah are concerned about the future generation. And that's why it's so important that hope is visible, that it's hope displayed. It isn't enough to know what we believe and to guard it. We each have to put our faith to work, and that takes courage. God is still searching for people like Micah who are prepared to stand strong and be holy heroes in a world that lies in ruin because of sin. There's a story told of Jesus returning to heaven. It's not in the Bible. It's just a legend. And Gabriel asks him how things have gone while he was down on earth. And Jesus replied, he's done all that was required. And now he'd left everything to Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples. To which Gabriel replied, that lot, surely not. They were always letting you down. Jesus looked at him and replied, there is no other plan. And there's still no other plan. The church is the only hope for the world. So we learn from this fourth chapter of Micah that even though things are going to get tough, there is still reason for hope. And what I'm trying to get across this morning and what Ruth said last week, that with God, there is both judgment and mercy. And this slide, next slide, shows the number of times in Micah. The bars going down are verses that mention judgment, and the bars going up are the verses that mention words of encouragement and comfort. So we've got words of warning and judgment and words of comfort and hope all the way through this book of Micah. And if only when things go wrong, we could realize God's perspective on the situation. Now, one of my most favorite old hymns is number 190 in the Believer's Hymn Book. And one of the verses goes like this. It says, 
With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. And I can look back on my life and I can see where there was judgment. Those times when I walked away and left God out of my life. When I went my own way, and I, yet I can see in that his mercy that he has never let me go. And the hymn goes on. And even the Jews of sorrow were lusted with his love. And there have over the years been times of sorrow. And as Colin has his treatment for cancer, it is a time of having to trust and to lean on God. But the next line goes, I'll bless the hand that guided. I'll bless the heart that planned. When throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And that is hope displayed. There is a loving heart of the Father planning our lives and a hand of wisdom, mercy, and grace guiding us through until we reach our heavenly home. Hope displayed. And in a world defined by tragedy, loss, and failure, do the words faith, hope, and love ring true or even possible? I recently visited a neighbor who had lost her husband, and she told me that they had had a humorous funeral. Now, I know what she meant. She meant a humanist funeral. And although the ones I've been to myself have been very nice in that they speak of the person's life and all that they've achieved throughout their life, actually, they know, offer no hope of eternal life and no hope of anything beyond the grave. There's nothing humorous about it at all. In the Ballad of Reading Jail, Oscar Wilde wrote, We were as men who through a fen of filthy darkness grope, we did not dare to breathe a prayer or give our anguish scope. Something was dead in each of us, and what was dead was hope. Completely without hope, but not for us, not for the Christian. In the letter that the, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Faith is needed in this life, but when we get to heaven, Faith will be replaced by sight. We won't need faith anymore. And although we cannot live without hope, in heaven, hope will be realized. It will not be needed because all our hopes will be realized in heaven. Love, however, love goes with us through this life and continues for all eternity. As Micah could trust the promises of God, so we too can say our hope of eternal life is based on the promises of God. Our hope is because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take that hope that we have beyond these doors and let the world see that there is a reason for the hope that we have. The Apostle Peter wrote, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Thank you. This is the end of this message. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more about our church, please visit www chowdean.org.uk and please take a minute to rate our podcast on iTunes.